0: This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast.
1: We are your study buddies for neonatology topics.
0: I'm Dr. Ben Korsha.
1: And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbeau.
0: Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Daphne, everything going okay today?
1: Uh, so far, so good. Let's get started.
0: Let's get started. Okay, so today is Wednesday morning. We have a couple of uh, neonatology board review questions for us. I'm going to get you started. We're still in our first week of the show. We're doing pulmonary questions, and this is question number eight from the mm-hmm. pulmonary section in the broad scan Q&A book. So question eight is, which of the following conventional ventilator parameter adjustment would lead to an increase in mean airway pressure? So which adjustment would you pick to increase mean airway pressure? Choice one is decrease. So it's very simple. First of all, all the choices are decreasing something. Mm. So the first one is decreasing the expiratory time. Choice two is decreasing the flow. Choice three is decreasing the peak inspiratory pressure, the PIP. Choice D is decreasing the positive end expiratory pressure, the PEEP. And finally, the last choice is decreasing the rate. All right, Daphna, what'd you pick?
1: Okay, so mean airway pressure. So basically, some of these, I think we can knock out right away, and then others we have to spend a little bit more time with. So basically, you would want to increase um, any pressure, anything that has the word pressure in it to <laughs> increase the mean airway pressure. So yeah. increasing our PIP or peak inspiratory pressure will increase mean airway pressure. So C is incorrect. Um, increasing the PEEP or a positive end expiratory pressure will increase your MAP. So D is incorrect. Uh, increasing the flow, which is actually a... a um, uh, a ventilator management that we forget about sometimes that we can even do. Um, so more flow, more pressure. Um, so that should, um, we would want to increase the flow to increase mean airway pressure. And then you really have decrease in the rate or decrease in the expiratory time. Um, so decreasing the rate uh, would eventually give you more instance, or decreasing in the rate would give you less instances of PIP. So that would decrease your mean airway pressure um, Mm -hmm. and not increase. So E is also incorrect. So that leaves us with decrease the expiratory time. And this makes sense, which is choice A. This makes sense because if you decrease the expiratory time, then you would increase your inspiratory time, which will lead to more time spent at higher pressures or increasing your area under the curve in your time pressure graph. Um, overall resulting in an increase in the mean airway pressure. So, decreasing the expiratory time, A, would lead to an increase in mean airway pressure.
0: Should we do like, who wants to be a millionaire? Is that your final answer?
1: <laughs> is that your final answer? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> so yes, A is correct. Decreasing the expiratory time will increase your mean airway pressure. So, um, let's backtrack. You've said so, everything you've said is correct. And um, and I think similarly about mean airway pressure, but there is a formula for mean airway pressure, mm-hmm. and the formula basically involves a few parameters. Mm-hmm. So you have, um, it's you have the first parameter is a bit sophisticated. It's you have a constant K, and then it's your PIP, your peak inspiratory pressure minus your PEEP, times uh, I time over I time plus E time. So your inspiratory time over your combined uh inspiratory and expiratory time this is one variable and then you add to that your peep obviously mean away pressure in order to increase your mean away pressure you want anything that will bring you above peep basically mm-hmm. right i mean mm-hmm. the more time you can spend above peep the more you're increasing your your mean away pressure and so i think there's um several things before we go into the different um answer choices Another way this question can be phrased sometimes is what is the most effective way to increase your map? And so Mm -hmm. when it comes to increasing your mean weight pressure, the best way to do that is to increase your PEEP, your Mm -hmm. positive and expiratory pressures. Because I feel like sometimes the question can be phrased in a different manner, in which case you are asked which one is the most important uh, uh, variable variable to, to change. And PEEP is the one that has the most effect, and it kind of makes sense because it's present in both on both sides of that mean airway pressure equation. And um, now let's let's look at so that's why number one uh, choice D is wrong. Obviously, we would never mm-hmm. want to decrease our PEEP to increase our mean airway pressure. Quite the opposite. Um, you explained peak inspiratory pressure. Obviously, the the higher the peak inspiratory pressure, the higher the the mean airway pressure. So we would not want to decrease that. And I think everybody understand that pretty well. Um, When it comes to flow, I think this is interesting because that's a very tricky thing. Mm -hmm. Flow is pressure, but it's not really pressure. Meaning your target, if you're doing pressure-targeted ventilation and you set a peak pressure at 20 centimeters of water, you're changing the flow, the vent will will stop when you reach that pressure. So Mm -hmm. then what's Mm -hmm. what's the big deal about going up on flow? Well, increasing flow actually allows you to reach that pressure much faster. Faster, And then when you reach that pressure much faster, your eye time is spent uh, more significantly at targeted Mm -hmm. pressure. So for example, let's be very gross in our numbers, but let's say you have an eye time of three seconds Mm -hmm. and it takes you two seconds to reach your peak pressure. So for the first two seconds, you'll be on that upslope when Mm -hmm. the vent is trying to reach that peak pressure and then you'll spend one second at target pressure but if you're increasing your flow you might reach that peak pressure within one second and now you're spending two seconds at your peak pressure Mm -hmm. and so that overall because you're increasing the amount of time you spent at your peak pressure you're increasing your mean airway pressure Um, in terms of the expiratory time you've you've explained this well um, decreasing the expiratory time because of you will effectively increase by default your inspiratory time and again the more time you spend at peak pressures, increase your mean weight pressure. I think from the review books, I recommend going to page 38, and uh, Dr. Brodsky and Martin have have referenced a nice graph where you can actually see sort of a, a ventilator cycle, uh, okay. actually you see two cycles, and then they've drawn on top of these all the different changes, whether you increase flow, increase PIP, increase PEEP, and it shows you all these effects on the uh, mean weight pressure. So that I think is very, very useful, um, and I recommend you checking that out. Is there anything that I forgot?
1: No, I, I totally agree with that. I think looking at those curves is very helpful. I think it helps you in clinical management, also thinking about you know the area under the curve, both for oxygenation or ventilation, but you know the parameters may may look a little bit different. but I, I think looking at those curves would be really helpful. Okay, yeah, shall agree. we continue? Let's go. Okay, question 13, your question here. A male infant is born at 34 weeks gestation. At 30 minutes of life, he is observed to have grunting, nasal flaring, and moderate subcostal retractions. He is then treated with continuous positive airway pressure ventilation, CPAP. Which of the following is most accurate about the effects of CPAP? So you can tell when I'm reading the question where I would have underlined as I'm. Yes. <laughs> if I was taking a paper test where I would have. Underlined.
0: Most accurate. Underlined.
1: <laughs> okay. So, which of the following is most accurate about the effects of CPAP? A. Increases total airway resistance. B. Increases lung compliance. C. Increases functional residual capacity. Or D. Limits gas
0: exchange. Okay. So, this. This is an easy question for me. I like CPAP. I've thought about mm-hmm. CPAP for a while. A lot.
1: <laughs> You're so, a lung guy, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. I I, uh, I would have answered increases functional residual capacity. So let me walk you through uh, my thought process. Number one, choice A says that CPAP, uh, does it increase total airway resistance? Um, the answer is obviously no. Yeah, um, sure hope not. Resi- <laughs> right? Um, by by recruiting. CPAP, C- C- P- positive end expiratory mm-hmm. pressure, the more you have of it, the more you're recruiting your alveoli, and the more alveoli you have recruited, the the more you reduce your airway resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, airway resistance really uh, we will go into that, I think, in future episodes when we're looking at the, the resistance of the airway. Um, having narrowed airway is really mm-hmm. something that can increase significantly your airway resistance. And so CPAP, by allowing the airway to remain distended really helps decrease resistance. So, heck no. Um, <laughs> choice B, increases long compliance. I found mm. that it took me some time when I, mm-hmm. I started learning about to the concept about of it. compliance and uh, the way I understand compliance is how much is the volume of the lung going to comply with increasing pressures. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the example I give is usually the party balloon reference, mm-hmm. right? So if you've ever blown a party balloon, you start by putting in a few uh, millimeters of air, right? And then the balloon almost like gets stuck, right? And that's Mm -hmm. a non-compliant balloon. You're putting in pressure and the volume doesn't change. And then suddenly, as you reach that breaking point, then the balloon suddenly like, it just inflates. And that's a huge increase in compliance, meaning suddenly the volume of the balloon is going to change dramatically with each little increase in pressure, okay? Like you gave surfactant. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So increases lung compliance... um, CPAP does not increase lung compliance. Um, if you go ahead.
1: Yeah. Well, I, well compliance is really a, a feature of the lung tissue itself, right? Is it's, mm-hmm. uh, is it's elastic distensibility, the elasticness of, of the lung. And so, um, right. It, it wouldn't change. Yep.
0: And if you are already on some CPAP and you're already distending the airway, mm-hmm. um, More CPAP, um, at that point you're you're decreasing, meaning the the ability of the lung to change in volume beyond that Mm -hmm. point is is a bit reduced because now you have that distending pressure there. And then finally, limiting gas exchange is something that I would say is incorrect because obviously the point of CPAP is to recruit as many alveoli Mm -hmm. as possible. If you recruit alveoli, you should optimize your gas exchange. So that's why I was thinking that this may not be the correct answer. So we are left with uh, the last option, increases functional residual capacity. So without going into um, too much details, um, CPAP has a tendency to increase FRC. What is FRC? Functional residual capacity is the amount of gas left in the lungs after normal expiration. And so by default, when you have a patient on CPAP, there's passive mechanical distension of the lungs. And because at the end of expiration, you would have uh, more gas left in the lung, that means that your FRC should be higher. And that's why um, I'm picking increasing in FRC after a patient is placed on CPAP. Okay.
1: <laughs> I think we have time for one more.
0: You wanna do one more? Let's do one more. Okay. All right. So this is uh, this is for you, you ready? I guess. So this is Uh, Question question. (laughs) Question 14. A female born at 36 weeks gestation presents with respiratory distress and her chest radiograph suggests surfactant deficiency. A deficiency in which of the following surfactant proteins has not been associated with human clinical disease. Let me repeat that. A deficiency in which of the following surfactant proteins has not been associated with a human clinical disease. And you have four choices, surfactant protein A for choice A, surfactant protein B for choice B, surfactant protein C for choice C, and surfactant protein D for choice D. So which one has not been associated with clinical disease?
1: So I'll tell you, I threw my hands up at this question. This is something I cannot commit to memory, but hopefully we will help people commit it to memory, but I ah, could Another, I another mnemonic the is coming. <laughs> I couldn't answer this question. <laughs> So I now know that the answer is D. Surfactant protein D uh, is not associated with human clinical disease.
0: How do you remember the surfactant proteins? Well, um, I try to lump them together. So Mm -hmm. first Mm -hmm. of all, um, the one thing we should mention is that surfactant proteins uh, compose a minority of the actual surfactant. So it's Mm -hmm. about only 8%. Of surfactants, and then you have four. Uh, you have four p- types of protein A, B, C, and D. And so, the most important proteins for the purposes of the board are simple. It's simple as A, B, C. Um, so A, B, C are the three surfactant protein that are very critical because they can cause clinical illness. Surfactant protein B and C are the ones that are critical for surfactant function. And so they're really the one uh, responsible when they're deficient for the symptoms of respiratory distress. Uh, Surfactant protein B is coded on chromosome two, surfactant protein C is coded on chromosome eight, and they're both responsible for um, respiratory symptom. Surfactant protein B is responsible for symptoms sooner than surfactant protein C. But they're both critical for surfactant function. So these are the two that I really, really make sure to remember. And then we have surfactant protein A, which um, is critical for tubular myelin formation and really, really responsible for host um, defenses. And so what does that mean practically? It, um, it's responsible for... Uh, reducing inflammation and uh, and host defense but it's also very important in maintaining the function of surfactant during acute lung injury and that's why when you are deficient in surfactant protein A can lead to increased severity of RDS and the development of chronic lung disease um, because of that of that specific function. And surfactant protein D, there's no longer any symptoms once you reach... (laughs) You're done, exactly. Is that your mnemonic?
1: No, I I said the dud, but it's not the The dud. dud. It does things. We just don't see symptoms. So, yeah, I agree with you. I figured I would focus on surfactant protein B. Uh, I know it's critical for surfactant function. I know that with protein A... It assists with the tubular myelin formation, um, which also requires calcium. And then along with C, it helps with the surface absorption of phospholipids, but it does both of those things um, instead of just one of those things. Um, Like you said, severe respiratory failure after birth, poor response to exogenous surfactant, frequently requiring transplant. Um, Those children with partial deficiency um, frequently have chronic interstitial lung disease in childhood. And then I remembered, like you said, it's secreted, um, you said it's found on chromosome two. So B is found on two, that's easy for me to remember. It's secreted by type two cells. um, So type two, chromosome two, letter B. um, And again, that it was the predominant um, surfactant protein in, in the respiratory distress that we see. A is a little milder, C is a little bit later. So those are the things I felt I could commit to memory. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is that all of our surfactant um, products um, contain surfactant proteins B and C, but not A or D. So I thought that was interesting as well.
0: Okay. Um, anything else to add?
1: I think that's all we've got time for.
0: All right. See you tomorrow, Daphna. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to NICUpodcasts at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.